But if, if the salvation of individual men were not under the providential control of God, there'd be no use praying like that. Prayer would be meaningless. How thankful we should be. This is not a hard doctrine. It's only hard when you've seen out of proportion. And if you, if you have in mind everything we've studied previously in providence, in understanding we're talking about what kind of a God do we have. That's the whole emphasis. The creeds of God, creation and providence. What kind of a God we have. We have an infinite God. It's not a hard doctrine. It is quite contrary to the Christian's hope and the Christian's joy. All things work together for good. The wonders of prophecy. We know how history is going to turn out. The wonder of being able to pray before we preach. You young men that are preaching now. And you're preaching and you're longing for the salvation of individuals as you preach. Uh, isn't it wonderful that you can pray that the Holy Spirit will touch hearts? Those others who are really saved and we long for the salvation of our loved ones, isn't it wonderful that we can pray that God can touch hearts? Is there anybody here that does any preaching that would dare stand up and, and, and preach uh, to the lost if he didn't have the assurance that he could pray for the salvation of people in Christ? How egoist it would be if we, could, if we think we could. How utterly, overwhelmingly horrible. Who are we to convince lost men? Who are we to convince lost men? It's not a hard doctrine. It's only a hard doctrine when it's seen out of perspective. And uh, I trust I can finish tonight because that's why I wanted to put it all together because we must see the perspective of the conclusion of this is the perspective of the beginning of it. Now then, the beginning of it is the whole study of the decrees of God, the nature of God, the infinity of God and creation, and then the providence. All we studied last time, all we studied this time, and then on. But thinking of all that, this is not hard. It's beautiful. This is not hard. It's been made hard by some men. It's been made hard by some men. But it wasn't meant to be hard. It's beautiful. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 4, 5, and 11. And as I say, in this section, it is a bit more complete. It isn't final, but it's a bit more complete than the other section. I've chosen out these hard verses, and, and I would say they're not hard. They're only considered hard out of perspective. Ephesians 1, 4. According as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, in order that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And the eleventh verse, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now you remember in our beginning to when we began to study the God of the Bible, We've said he is a personal God. And by personal, we said he thought, he acted, and he had feelings. And the, we chose a verse to put an emphasis upon the fact that he thinks. And the, the one we chose was verse 4. Verse 4, Ephesians 1, 4, the emphasis on the fact that God thinks he has a plan. God is a personal God. God is a personal God. He has a plan. And the salvation in his and in this area of his thinking, in this area of him being a personal God, and not just a mechanical, uh, a mechanical God, not a, a, a determined God, but a God who is a person. We can speak of his plan, and in the midst of his plan is this: 
And that is the individual salvation, the salvation is not out of his total providential hands. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a works, lest any man should boast. Now this verse can be abused if it is out of con- if it is put out of the total framework. It is not to be pitted like any- none of these verses are to be pitted. We've already said this now. The difficulty is, you see, with a man like myself teaching, I say something, I lay a framework, and then I realize as you get on, a lot of people forget the framework. The thing you have to keep struggling for. People don't forget the framework. And I've said that none of this, none of this in the realization the men are different since the fall than they were before the fall and now need to regenerate with the Holy Spirit, that none of this militates at all against the reality of the invitation and the reality of the promises of God spoken out into the lost world. Well, now, this, this verse mustn't be taken this way. Just because it says faith is a gift of God, it doesn't mean that you have to stand up in front of a lot of unsafe people. And, uh, and tell them that they've got to have that they've got to wait for the faith from God before answering the invitation. You may be led sometimes to the Holy Spirit to speak this way, but uh, but it's an abuse if it is done coldly and harshly and mechanically. It isn't the idea. The idea is we're told something after we're saved. We're told for our assurance. We're told for our quiet. We're told for our peace of mind, and that is God gave us the faith. And what God's saying, don't transfer my life. It removes our pride after we're saved. There's no reason for pride after we're saved. God gets the praise. God gets the praise. The thing we need to continually remember. But having said this, the, the, the thrust here isn't, isn't something harsh. It isn't something to drive men to desperation. It isn't something to militate against the, the, the universal invitation in the Word of God. But it's here. The individual salvation of men is not outside of the providential control of God. We're almost finished these now. Second Thessalonians two thirteen. Second Thessalonians two thirteen. almost feel like saying if you've listened to this this lesson on problems you've got to go back and listen to the first one again I hardly feel a, a review uh, and a conclusion is enough almost to keep it in the framework it all must be kept in mind together taught in the word of God 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. God hath from the beginning chosen you. In 2 Timothy 1.19, this is the last verse in this regard. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, one nine. I said one nineteen. I have that ring in my ear. But if that's what I said, I'm wrong. One nine. Who hath saved us and called us unto a ho- with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Isn't that beautiful? 
before the world began. Now then, these are the verses under the providential dealing of God in the area of individual and individual into the uh, area at this specific place under the letter C in my notes of the salvation of the individual. But I have one other person's salvation I want to talk to you about for just just about 30 seconds, and that's each of us individual saying, what about my salvation? What about my salvation? Now, as I look around this room, every one of us in this room has made a profession of faith. Good many of you here, good many of you in some other places. And we each have made a profession of faith. Uh, let's not pass this by without having a, a uh, wave of thanksgiving in ourselves that our salvation was not outside of the providential case. Now, some of us have been snatched as brands from the burn. I look around this room, some of us have come from about the most difficult circumstances that men can imagine. The, the circumstance from which not many people are saved in our generation. Aren't you glad that it didn't depend upon you? Aren't you? I am. I am. My salvation was was just about as unlikely as, as one could imagine. How thankful I am that it didn't depend upon myself, but upon God. Because it wasn't outside of the providential miracle. Occasionally, just occasionally, I've heard something that always makes me feel like dying. And that is when somebody says, I'm glad I've sent enough to accept Christ to save. That's all. It really is. God who gets the praise. It's God who gets the praise. The individual salvation of men are not outside of the providential hand of God. Looking around at each of you who have accepted Christ as Savior, some of you longer ago and some of you shorter ago. I guess my own salvation was longer ago than anybody else is here now. I don't know, but I think so. Some of you very, very recently. But aren't you glad, and aren't we glad, that your salvation, whether it was longer ago or shorter ago, was in the providential hand of God? Didn't I Doesn't fill you with assurance. Doesn't it fill you with thanksgiving. Doesn't it fill you? And remember what our Bible study is now. It's in this whole area. Doesn't it fill you with the wonder of our God? An infinite God. A living God. Personal God. But infinite. Now then, to go on. But note the Bible balances its emphasis on the total providential control and plan of God that balances it with very, very, very carefully. Like the best uh, mobile you've ever seen. Uh, some mobiles are beautiful, some aren't beautiful. But there are a few mobiles I like because they're so carefully balanced. Any of you go to Basel, be sure to go to the big museum up there and go up on the stairway. There's lots of other things in the Basel Museum, but if you but that's worth doing. You get on the stairway and they have a rope, and you give the rope a yank and it moves the mobile. And they call it a million, I think it's a million, a million leaves made out of metal. It's not a million, it's not a thousand, but it's a lot. 
and uh, all these leaves suddenly move. What's beautiful about a mobile? It's the darkness of the bow. That's what's beautiful about a mobile. If you often wonder why people find mobiles beautiful, that's the reason some people find good mobiles beautiful. They're bad mobiles. They grow into self-destructing machines if they take them a step further. But I'm talking about good mobiles. Now then, the delicate balance. And the Bible is, is delicately balanced at this point. It does not draw its hand back in embarrassment from the insistence on a total, the total providential power. But at the same time, it puts equal balance, it puts equal emphasis upon the significance of history and the significance of men. The significance of history and the significance of men. Now, I'm not going to repeat again uh, what we said about the distinction between the Eastern religions and the Judeo-Christian tradition at this particular place. I'm just not going to repeat it. I'm just going to call it to your mind. If you've forgotten it, you better go back and listen to the last tape again. But the significance of history, cause and effect, the reality of history, and the reality of men, and the reality of man's true choices, this is balanced with the greatest delicacy against all we have just read. The two I put down here, that put down, as you shall see, with great clarity on both sides, and uh, you mustn't, you mustn't ever get to the place where you become fatalistic. The scriptural system is not the Mohammedan system. The Mohammedan system is fatalistic. Uh, the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam says this with tremendous force. But the Christian system is not fatalistic. And beside what we have just seen, in the wonder of the infinity of God, and he is totally infinite, in all the total providential elements of, uh, of life. Now remember what, remember what we have seen, the things that man would consider chance, nature, nation, the personal areas, the acts of individual men, even sinful acts, the salvation of individuals. In all these areas, the total infinity of God, and yet the constant emphasis in the Word of God equally upon the wonder of the significance of history, and everything else hangs on the significance of history. It isn't the significance of man, the significance of history, the The significance of history, the significance of man, man's three choices. And therefore, the Christian system has no relationship whatsoever to a fatalistic one. You remember when I keep telling you I'm going to give a Farahawk lecture on the ruby out of Omar Khayyam. I will get to it. Uh, I'm not tell you though, I'm going to do it before Daniel gets away, it's not even to listen to the tape. Uh, the, but uh, I pointed out to you already in passing that Fitzgerald, when he translated the Ruby out of Omar Khayyam, did not deal with it fairly. He took the, uh, he dealt with it fairly, but he didn't deal with Christianity fairly, because he took the weaknesses of, uh, of uh, Islam. And by changing the terminology, he brought it over and taught back in the last century in England as though this was the weakness also of Christianity. And this was Tennyson's memoriam with one of the opening guns of liberalism and destroying Christianity. Very intriguing thing. And he was dishonest in this. So with, with six girl with here tonight, I'd like to tell him he was dishonest in this and hope he could be saved if he saw he was dishonest. Because the, the, what he raises 
what the, oh, the Rubiat raises as objections against Islam is just. And what Fitzgerald then translated into English as a, an objection against the fatalism of Islam is just. But to use terminology that would make you think that it's referred to Christianity is not only unjust, it is unintelligent. It doesn't understand, unless it is wicked, unless it's done purposely. Either it is stupid or it is wicked, one or the other. And the man who wrote the notes in this very, very, very fine edition I have, which was given to me, remember about, I won't mention the name of the reading here. And the, uh, this very fine edition does exactly the same thing. Very deliberately, very deliberately, very deliberately, very deliberately. Uh, it, the, the notes equate uh, Islam with the Christian position. And as I say, it's either stupid or wicked. It's a little hard to know which it is. Why am I saying all this? Because I want to leave in your mind as strongly as I know how in the five minutes about that I've allowed myself to say it is the fact that the Christian system is not fatalistic and is not equated in any way, shape, or form, either, neither religiously nor intellectually, with the system of Islam. It is not fatalistic. Now, we want to look down at some verses uh, to see the balance that the Bible gives, the balance the Bible gives us uh, in place after place. Now, I want you to notice that in all these places where these verses are, they are all after the fall. Now, would you please take that down in your notes? They're all after the fall. None of them are before the fall. They're all in the space-time situation in which man is since the fall and in which you and I are tonight. Remember, we said now with great clear clarity, because you got if you don't say this, you don't understand the biblical teachings. You must make a distinction between man before the fall and after the fall. And then you have a different space-time uh, uh, situation after the fall. But all these verses are in the space-time situation, not before the fall, but after the fall. Now then, if you look at Acts 2.23, quite frankly, I'm facing a dilemma. I don't think I'm going to be able to finish without keeping much over the two hours, but let's see how it goes. Acts 2.23. Some of the lessons of the prophecy tapes, we went as long as three and a half hours. But I said in these, I'm going to try to keep it so that people who take the lessons know how long they will have a lesson if they face the individual lessons. But tonight I am facing the problem. Him being, we've already looked at this, so I want to look at it from a different viewpoint now. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now notice how the verse is broken directly in half. You by wicked hands have slain. You by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Notice the area of responsibility in the second half of the verse. Their hands are wicked. And slain. Jesus Christ. And that is not made less so because of the first part of the verse, him being declared by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. 
And what you have here is a delicately bound situation, a delicate, more delicately bound, no, that's as delicately bound as the best mobile there's ever been. A mobile, a mobile stimulates life. A mobile stimulates life. It doesn't stimulate death and it doesn't stimulate a machine. It stimulates life as it stands in its balance. And the Word of God is talking about life and nothing mechanical. It's not talking about something merely doctrinal. It's talking about true life and it stands in its living balance. The balance stands the providential hand of God, but this does not stop for a moment the fact of the wickedness and the choice that they make. Now notice the same force exactly, uh, well, pardon me, 38 and 39 first. Verse 38 and 39 of the first is the same chapter before we go on. I don't want to exhaust any of these verses uh, either. I just want to say them as a flowing stream so you can feel the force. So I'm not going to execute the verses completely in any case. Then Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of the sins, and you shall receive the gift uh, of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now we've been looking at this verse the last couple Sundays ago, you remember, and studying the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, in regard to the book of Joshua and the entering the land. Um, the individual emphasis here and so and so and so just call that to your mind but having said this let us know let us let us notice that the promise is to you the reason these individual Jews standing in front of Peter at this particular moment the reason they can have salvation uh, is because the promise has been made and Jesus is really coming Jesus is really God the promises of God have to be fulfilled that these individual Jews could not be saved, and you can't be saved, and I can't be saved. And the Jew and those saved before the cross would have come to an unhappy end if Jesus hadn't died upon the cross. It was necessary that Jesus died upon the cross. And yet how is it accomplished? It's bound so delicately. If we've seen in this previous section, the previous verse, wicked hands explaining it. The determination of God in the sense of the, the providential control of God, care of God, does not change the fact that they have wicked hands. And yet how important it is that this whole thing be in balance, or in the next few verses, Peter couldn't be preaching salvation to the Jews, and he couldn't be preaching salvation here in the house, and nobody of God's children could be preaching salvation anywhere because it wouldn't have existed. Now notice in 4.27 and 28, same balance, 4.27, of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. Notice that note of rebellion. Were gathered together. The thing that you'll come to, full, full climax in the Antichrist, the fulfillment of the second psalm. You can almost hear the second psalm shouting aloud broad here in in its partial fulfillment people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done same balance same balance 
27, the people of Israel were gathered together. Choice, rebellion, responsibility. 28, verse 42, whatsoever thy hand counsels, he come before the begun. What a gentle battle. Now let's look back in Genesis 20 and the 6th verse. Genesis chapter 20 and the 6th verse. Now I'll tell you why I've chosen the Acts verses first. I'll tell you why I do that purposely. And that is because it brings the thing to the climax. It brings the thing to the apex at the very beginning, it seems to me, and that is the death of Jesus Christ in this regard. And now let's go back to the beginning. Genesis 20, 20 and the 6th verse. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in, thy in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Now here he's saying to, uh, to Abimelech, to this heathen king, and he says to him two things. You've done it in the integrity of your heart. You've chosen in the, in the situation uh, up to this moment, he chose not to touch this man's wife. And yet at the same time, I withheld thee from sinning against him. Notice exactly the same balance that we have found in the Acts chapter. Then in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 8, 10, now remember, I'm not executing any of these verses with any completeness. That isn't my point. I'm only thinking of one thing, and that is the balance. That's all I'm trying to find from the flow of these verses tonight. Second Kings 8, 10. And Elisha said unto him, Go and say unto him, Thou mayest certainly, re thou mayest certainly recover. Howbeit the Lord has shown me that he shall surely die. Now this is a... Pardon me. I'm going to look it up in my other Bible so I can find it Next reference, most easy. Um, yes, 2 Kings 8, that's the one I gave you with me. 2 Kings 8. Notice how this follows through. 2 Kings 8. And Elisha is giving this, says, this man comes and he says, is the king going to get well? And he says, tell the king, yes, thou mayest certainly recover. It would be possible for you to recover. How be it the Lord has showed me that he will surely die. Now this is an amazing verse. Don't ever mistake the, the, the wonder of it, the trust of it. The king is, 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 uh, is, king is um, ben Hadad going to recover? Well, he may recover, but he's going to die. And then in down in this, uh, down in this, look at verses 14 and 15. Because 14 is the first part of the 10. Thou mayest certainly recover. That is the message sent to the king, Ben Hadad. And verse 15 is with the second part, you shall surely die. So he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, What said Elisha to thee? And he answered, He told me that thou should surely recover. And it came to pass on the morrow that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died. Now, this is an, an amazing balance. It's an amazing balance. If the thing had been left to itself, 
he would have recovered. But Elisha said the two things. He wasn't going to be left to himself. The situation wasn't going to be left to himself. He was going to be murdered. But now why am I bringing it in here? I'm bringing it in here to show the balance. Because if he had been left to himself, he would have gotten well. You have a historic sequence, a historic significance, which was flowing along. I mean, itself, he was going to get well. But it was going to be cut short. So you have this, this double you have told you what would happen in a historic sequence if left to itself. The righteous, and I don't want to get into the detail here, why this itself, uh, but Elisha, and the, the complexity here, that is, uh, it's wonderful to study, but Elisha says that it isn't going to be carried out to its historic sequence. He would get well, but he's not going to, and then he's not. So what you have here is the delicate balance of the historic significance having meaning, and yet on the basis of the of the providential hand of God, he didn't get well at you. Now this isn't the only place where you have this kind of a situation. In Second Kings twenty one through seven. Second Kings twenty one through seven. Second Kings twenty one through seven. Now, uh, I'm going to have Jeremy turn the tape off, and uh, those with the uh, listening on the tape, and those of us here, uh, I'll allow uh, three minutes exactly by my watch to read the first seven verses. Uh, now, for those of you on the tape again, Second Kings 20, 1 through 7. Thank you, Jeremy. Now, the tape started again, and we'll go on. Notice in these first seven verses, it divides into three parts. The first three parts, the first of three parts is the first verse. Thou shalt not die, thou shalt die and not live. There's a five sequences that he's going to die. But the second section is verses two through six, and he prays. And as he prays, God responds and says through Isaiah, I think you'll get well. And then the third section is verse 7, in which he told the means by which he was made well. There was a medical means involved. It wasn't a, uh, a miracle without means. Now notice here, again, I notice here again that you have the same balance that we saw in the previous sentence in the chapter. The historic sequence was, his, was to be his death. That would have been the historic sequence. But in answer to prayer, God intervened. Now the, the historic sequence is set. Notice it. It isn't a random. It isn't a random historic sequence. It's an absolute historic sequence. The absolute historic sequence is he was going to die. But in answer to prayer, now we've been saying over and over again the importance of 
uh, of God's hand in providence uh, or prayer not having any need to be an illustration. But in answer to prayer, God says you're going to get well, and then, then Isaiah uses a means and gets well. But you see, this is exactly the same balance again. You have the providential, the providential hand of God dealing into a situation, but in answer to prayer. And there was a historic sequence that was already set. The historic sequence was quite final. He was going to God. It isn't that there was a, a, an open-end situation where anything could happen. Everything fell. It wasn't a random situation. The historic sequence is in the direction of his death. That was final, it was determined, as far as the historic sequence is concerned. Yet, yet, man had meaning. Man had meaning. The, uh, just as in the previous class. Here the meaning was that man has significance in history, in a history that is real. This isn't just a story, it's history is real, it's based time-wise. And here you come, a man, man, God says, death is the end of the sequence. And yet man, moving in space and time and history, has significance to such an end that when he prays, the thing is changed, and then he is healed. Now the fact that he is healed by medical means, Rather than a pure miracle, really, isn't it? Doesn't matter. You are studied, not just interested in Now, then, what you have here, and you, of course, we could, we could approach this from a different viewpoint. We could approach it in the study of prayer, and we could have put our emphasis upon the realness of prayer. The little, the little phrase, prayer changes things, if it's And you don't have to give up the infinity of the the infinity of the providential hand of God in order to believe the prayer changes things. The Bible balances the two of them with its delicate, delicate, delicate balance. Now notice in Luke, in Luke 15, you have a whole chapter of the same nature. A whole chapter devoted to the delicate balance. Um, I do have to, I say I'm not exhausting any of these passages, I'm not. But I do have to point out to you, or that what I say in the next few minutes will have no meaning, that the 15th chapter is a unity. You must always say the 15th chapter as one piece, it's a solid piece. The unity is, is uh, shown through the two key words of lost and joy. It's in three different, three different uh, stories that are told. Uh, the lost sheep, the lost piece of money, and the prodigal son. But it's, it's a solid unit. Jesus is teaching, teaching in three different things, three different ways, but he returns to the same thing, lost and joy. You notice in the fourth verse, the sheep is lost. In the ninth verse, the coin is lost. And the eighth verse says it's also, says also says it's lost. The coin is lost. The twenty-fourth verse, the, the prodigal son is lost. The twenty-fourth verse, the prodigal son, uh, I beg your pardon, the thirty-second verse, the prodigal son is declared to have been lost. 
So each of the things spoken of are lost. And then there's joy in the finding, uh, in the, in, in regard to each of them. The joy begins in the fifth verse. Rejoicing, the sixth verse, rejoice. The seventh verse, joy in heaven. The ninth verse, rejoice. The tenth verse, joy. The twenty-second verse, uh, and the twenty-third, twenty-fourth, the joy. And the, and the Father, what, what is good because of it. And the thirty-second verse, uh, we should be glad. So the unity of this, this chapter is the unity of, uh, the unity of the lostness and then the joy. But that's, but what I want to look at tonight is not the central teaching of it, but this, uh, but the balance again we're speaking of. Now then, the first two of the lost things are from God's side, to speak of it that way at this point. The first is a lost sheep, and the lost sheep has to be searched out. The second is a lost coin that doesn't even know it's lost, if you know what I mean. It's just there in a crack in the floor somewhere. On the other hand, the third story, the prodigal knew very well he was lost and he came back. And this is a tremendously and amazing delicate balance. An amazingly delicate balance. You don't have a conflict here. In the case of uh, in the case of the lost coin and the lost sheep, let's keep them in proper order. The lost sheep and the lost coin. Um, there is a necessity to go and search for it, and the thing doesn't move until you search for it. Sheep's moving. I don't mean that, but, but it's not moving towards helping itself. It's only getting deeper in the briar. On the other hand, on the case of the prodigal son, it's an entirely different situation. He came to himself. He knew he was lost. He made a choice. He went back. So what you have here is, is once more, this tremendously delicate balance. There is something from God's side, the complete sovereignty of God, uh, the providential hand of God, but there is something from, from the side of the sinner coming to himself. Now then, bringing this together with our lesson last time, that doesn't mean then if this is thinking of the sinner, this doesn't mean that there hasn't been a work of the Holy Spirit below the conscience, conscience of the sinner, consciousness, I beg your pardon, consciousness of the sinner. But, but from the human viewpoint, just looking at the thing, the bow, that you don't take that, you don't have to take that into effect. You do, you think, you remember. Uh, but, but, but it isn't a central thing. That isn't brought in here. The thing is simply brought in that you have a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost man. And one is told completely from God's side during the searching. The woman goes sweeping, for example. The shepherd goes looking. Uh, Francis Thomas Thompson, is that right? Hound of heaven. Um, uh, he searched me down the arches and down the years. I like that right. On the other hand, you have... Uh, it is Francis Thompson. He's an awful done wrong. Thank you. Uh, the, uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, the, um, in the case of prodigal son, he comes to himself. Now, do you feel the balance? It, it's marvelous. Nothing dead exists. This is life. This is life. 
Uh, why do I say it's life? Because that's the way the universe is. That's the way the universe is. We need both, and the Bible teaches both. That's sticking ahead a little bit to my conclusion. But you need both, and the Bible teaches both. It's life. It isn't an old big hunk of iron. Just as a mobile is alive, because life is alive. When the wind blows, the leaves move. So when the man makes the mobile, he makes it to simulate life. So here the Bible's telling us what the universe is. It's not there. It's not there. Now then, in, um, in John 6, 39, John 6, 39, um, incidentally, I think I will go another half hour and finish this. I think I should. Anybody who's listening to the tape can easily stop it and come back if you must. John 6, 39 and 40 on. Now, the secret of this is, it's the last phrase, but should raise it up again at the last day. This is repeated in four different verses. Verse 39 should raise it up again the last day. Verse 40, I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 44, I will raise him up at the last day. And verse 54, I will raise him up at the last day. Now this draws these, uh, these, three, these four verses together into a unit. Now let's notice what, what Jesus gives in regard to it. 39. This is the Father's will that sent me, that all which he has given me I should lose nothing. The whole emphasis is on the side of God, totally, 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 100%. But I should raise it up at the la- again at the last day. But notice the 40th verse, and of course, quickly saying, the 40th immediately follows the 39th, and in the Greek there aren't first division. It's the next sentence. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. Surely there is a parallelism here. If there's ever been anything in literature that that insists that we don't miss the parallelism, it's these two verses. Where Jesus ends the last, it sounds almost like the same thing. It begins in the 39th verse and this is the Father's will that sent me. In the 40th verse it begins, and this is the will of him that sent me. 
39th verse ends, but should raise it up again at the last day. The 40th verse ends, I will raise him up at the last day. It's a total parallelism from a literary viewpoint. But the two verses, the two, the two middle sections, are in tremendous balance. That all of which he has given me, I should lose nothing. And in the 40th verse, that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. are in tremendous balance that all of which he has given me I should lose nothing and in the 40th verse that everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life what about total providential care of God hand of God but the other is balanced immediately with surely we can't think that it was a mistake on Jesus' part or uh, uh, just a, a happening on Jesus' part with this total parallelism the beginning of the verse the end of the verse the beginning of the verses the end of the verses parallel that he put it immediately following one the other what he does what he does is like keeping keeping a uh, a ping pong ball in the proper place in the air he caps it with this paddle and he caps it with this paddle as it were it's in balance now this is made stronger and i think shown to be entirely intentional first in the teaching of jesus and then the inspiration of the spirit to john and writing it into the new testament that it's repeated in the 44th verse i will raise him up at the last day and this says no man can come unto me except the father which has sent me draw him what a tremendously strong statement but quickly the 54th verse which flows along in this same in this same context I will raise him up at the last day. And what does this verse say? Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh, drinketh my blood hath eternal life. And as we just studied in the Champerie class, there's ample reason in the sixth chapter and the seventh chapter to understand that this is not some sort of a sacramental eating and drinking, it's believing on Jesus. The whole, the whole setting is very strong. quickly add anybody that has trouble with it verse 40 verse 35 says that it means to believe verse 47 says that it means to believe and verse 63 and 64 are very very plain that's only a parenthesis here therefore therefore what you have is a double parallelism in verses 39 and 34 uh, 39 and 40 the first one from the side of God, the second, the believing. In verses 44 and in 54, the parallelism is repeated. 44 being from the side of God with such strength, except the Father which hath sent him, sent me, draw him. And the 54th verse insisting on unless we believe on him, we just don't have this everlasting life. And the four, the eternal life, and the four verses being totally tied together with a phrase, I will raise him up at the last day, and the first two having the first phrase parallel as well. So you have this, this total balance again. Now then, it isn't, it isn't the end of it, however. If you notice in John 17, 6, 
John 17, 6. Now, I'm not again taking all of these. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. You notice exactly the same parallel. Thou gavest them me, but they have kept thy word. Exactly the parallel. And then we have already looked at the two great Acts passages. And then Romans 9, 10, and 11. And the difficulty here is the, is the, uh, is the amount of material. Because really you ought to read all three chapters. And I, because I had intended to have everybody read through the three chapters, at this particular point. But because it's so late, I won't. I'll only tell you, point out what you can read for yourself after you get to, if you get home tonight or uh, tomorrow. Romans 9, 10, 11, of course, is dealing, is dealing with the New Testament teaching about the Jews. The past Jews, the present Jews, and the future Jews. And it's very important from this viewpoint. But the interesting thing is this parallelism here is, is intense. Beginning with 9-8, it's God's side. And nothing could be more strong. It's absolutely, human language could not be more strenuous on the total infinity and sovereignty of God in this situation. That begins with Romans 9-8 and goes down through verse 29. Quotes the Old Testament. It's absolutely tight. But then when he begins in the verse 30 of the ninth section, down through the 11th chapter in the 4th verse, especially the first part of it, it's equally as definite on the other side. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles which follow not after righteousness hath attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? Whose faith? It's man's faith. But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law. There should be a period there. Thirty second verse. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by work. That's the way that verse should read. For they stumbled at that stone. Shall I read that again? Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by work. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, and so on. Then he goes down and he stresses, he stresses man's side and just continues right on down. Notice the eleventh and the twelfth and the thirteenth verses. For the scripture said, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Whosoever. Whosoever just as strong as John 3. 13th verse, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just as strong. Just as strong as John 3. Just as every day strong. But when you come, I beg your pardon, I see that I missed my own note. The man's side ends with the end of the 10th chapter. 
God ties in this, this wonderful balance. Chapter 9, beginning with the 8th verse through the 29th verse. Man's side beginning with the 30th verse through the whole 10th chapter. Then you begin again. The 11th chapter and the 5th verse gives God's side with tremendous force. There's no room to compromise it. But beginning with the 20th verse, you begin with man's side. Surely this is not to be considered as, a, as just something that happened. It's the way Paul taught. In the first place, it's the way Paul taught, just as it's the way Jesus taught. The way reason it's in the Bible and John, the way it is, is because that's the way Jesus taught. This is his, this is his method of teaching, this great, this great doctrinal balance. Then the Holy Spirit inspires John, so this is the way it's brought to us. In the book of Romans, this is the way Paul taught. He was, this isn't a, uh, something we've made up since. This is the way Paul taught. And then it's the thing the Holy Spirit preserved in, in the tremendous book of Romans. And you have this balanced status. God's side, man. God's side, man. Remove one or the other, and you've missed the whole thing. But you have something false, not something true. You may save your ego from by removing one side or the other, but what you become is a rationalist, even if you're orthodox. And what should be the ending of such a consideration as we're making here of this magnificence of what is presented? And we please remember at this time, it includes last week's study, the last time study on Providence, and not just this time. What should be our conclusion? Well, the conclusion shouldn't be a, a doctrinal death on either side. The conclusion should be adoration. That was Paul's conclusion. Even though Paul stating it himself, when after he gets done stating this, he is so overwhelmed by what he has stated and is what he taught under the from the Lord's teaching to him. And of course what he what he gives in the eleventh chapter, thirty three through thirty six, undoubtedly is filling his mind with the wonder of God's plan for the Jews. But also, undoubtedly, it contains what we're talking about tonight. And what's his, what's his cry? His cry should be ours. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and shall it be, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that should be the reaction. The reaction should be the falling down at the feet of the one infinite person in the universe and adore. You have this phrase, very striking one, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Why? Well, just for one basic reason. It's the one, the one thing we have been hammering away on. It's because of who God is. It's his infinity. He's infinite. We're finite. 
And because he's infinite and we're finite, we're not going to be able to search out all his ways. Because he is infinite and we are finite, we can never exhaust him. Never exhaust him. And so in order to state the truth of his person and the truth of what he is, the only way to state it to finite men is the way the Bible states it, and that is this side and then that side. There's no other way to state it. To begin to tone down on either thing is to destroy the marvel of the Bible and then let us say it and hold our breath and be careful we do not do it. It is to destroy the understanding of the total infinity of God. Our God is so infinite that he can make History with significance, men with significance, and yet retain his total insanity. This is our God. Now then, there are two places, two places in Scripture where the curtain is pulled back a little way. One is in the New Testament, the other in the Old. There are two places in Scripture where the curtain is pulled back a little way and we can see just a little deeper than we have seen so far. The first is 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. Maybe there are other places in Scripture like this, but it's the only two I know. And the Old Testament one is not as clear as the New, but the, together they're very instructive. 1 Samuel 23. And we find that that the Philistines fight against Keilah. They rob the threshing floors. In the second verse, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines and save Keilah. That's the first step. The second step, David's men said to him, We're afraid. So the fourth step. David inquired again at the Lord. How gentle is the Lord. He never turns us away, does he? When we come honestly in this way. And so God repeats, go down to Keilah. The fourth verse. So David and his men went. And there was a great slaughter. And they saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Otherwise they would have been killed. Now then, you notice in the sixth verse, now it's the first shall I call an episode just from a literary viewpoint so of course it's history and in the sixth verse we're told he had an effort in his hand so that's apparently <clears throat> and there's the priest down in the ninth verse a bisar so he's the priest and the effort and apparently this is the way he is asking he is inquiring of God now you come to the second episode second episode begins the eleventh verse Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Now, Saul has come on the scene. Will Saul come down as thy servant has heard? And the Lord, through the effort and the priest, gives answer. Oh, as we run down here, but he's still asking. O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. The answer was, from the Lord, he will come down. Twelfth verse. Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? Twelfth verse. They will deliver thee up. Thirteenth verse. So what did they do? Well, they got out of Keilah. 
so at the end of 13, Saul didn't come up with you. This is, this is correct, tremendous. He just takes the breath away. This is the only, there are only two places I know. Maybe some of you can find more, and if you can, I would be, I'd love to know them. But there are these two places, in this and in the one in the New Testament I'll show you, which is even clearer, and which those of you who know me and have heard my teaching here know what I'm referring to. But there are these two places where the curtain is pulled back. In the other places, you have this balance. But here you have something more in the balance. You have a told that, that you have a flow of history. God tells what they're going to do, but the situation is never fulfilled because some man, and namely David in this case, makes a choice. And so the situation doesn't take place. I don't know if you all feel the wonder of that or not, but it's amazing. He just takes your breath away. Because if he had stayed there, the men would have delivered him up to Saul and that had been the end of the story. In the end of David, in the end of God's promises, incidentally, that the Christ would come through. But because God told him, man makes a choice. And because man makes a choice into a historic reality, the thing that would have taken place never thought, never happened. And therefore, David is saved. Saul doesn't even come up to the city. It's fantastic. You have a whole historic situation given before you, none, not one factor of which ever takes place. Because man makes a choice which has significance into a history that is real. It's my, my astronaut. Remember my astronaut? Take him up into the air. How is he going to have freedom? Well, if you take away his suit, you take away everything. I remember it said, of course, he died, lack of oxygen, but forgetting that, he could kick all he wished in his weightless connection, can, uh, condition he have no freedom because he has nothing to work against as I said in the introduction to this thing you need two things for freedom you need a set for a framework and you need freedom well here you have a picture there is a set framework of history if David had stayed there Saul had come up David had been killed that had been the end of David and incidentally God's prophecies would have been destroyed but instead of that, David inquires of the Lord. He finds out what the history is going to be, and it never comes to pass because he makes another choice. Out he goes in the other way, and the factors are not never not even brought together to the situation where Saul even comes to the city. And it seems to me, and I talk about worshiping. This is where we ought to worship. It seems to me because at this time we have drawn back just a little bit to our poor finite mind, something of the infinity of the infinite God and history. Now the New Testament one is is still more striking, I think, in Acts 27, 24 and on. It's the shipwreck journey. Acts 27, 24 and on. Acts 27, 24 and on. The shipwreck journey. Now we're in a space-time situation again. And all these things should remind us again, I can't help but saying, because I think we ought to say it every so often, how thankful we ought to be that Karl Barth's not right. How thankful we ought to be Kierkegaard's not right. How thankful we ought to be all the new theology's not right. 
these things are uh, no upper story. This is Jasper's upper story. Uh, uh, not an upper story, it's a space-time relationship in which rationality and logic encompasses the whole. And so we have here. And we're told in the 27th chapter, 24th verse, now remember this is space-time and history. And they're on a sea. And um, the Mediterranean is just south of us here. And they can have tremendous storms on the Mediterranean. And it's a space-time moment. The space is a certain portion of the Mediterranean. There is a time. If we knew, if we had the calendar, we could tell the month, the day, the year. And we could tell the, the hour, and we could tell the minute. And in a certain space-time minute, we have the word, God speaks, uh, uh, an angel comes and says to him, Don't be afraid, Paul. Thou shalt be brought before Caesar, and lo, God has given thee all them that sail with. Now, this may have a meaning, spiritual meaning. Some people thought that it might mean that they're all saved eventually. I, I doubt if you can draw this from it. I don't think that's the important point at all. The important point of the story is that they're not going to get drowned. That's the point the Bible makes up. All right, now then you have a situation. Let's notice the situation. It's overwhelming. Now think of it step by step. They're on a boat, and the, from every human viewpoint, the boat's going to sink. But God says to the angel, don't be afraid, Paul. You're not going to drown. You're not going to drown. And he tells him why, he, why he's not going to drown, because God has a purpose for him. The purpose is he wants him to preach before Caesar in Rome. So he's not going to drown. And more than that, the angel adds something else, that everybody in the boat, they're not going to drown either. Nobody's going to do. Well then, if it was a purely mechanical situation, nobody's going to drown. Everybody go to bed and go to sleep, and that's it. Nobody's going to drown. But that isn't the way the Bible gives the story. The Bible gives the story in exactly the opposite direction from that. You have in the thirty-first verse. Paul said to the centurion of the soldiers, "Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved." Well, then you have to know the story. The story is that they have one lifeboat. And the sailors are sailors, and the rest of the people are land robbers. And the sailors look at the situation, and they know it's desperate. And they figure out, and they figure there's enough room in the lifeboat for all the sailors. So they, they have a stratagem. They say, we're going to put out a couple more uh, uh, anchors. They pull the lifeboat up. And curiously enough, it takes every sailor in the boat to get in to put out the anchor. That's what they planned. And then they were all going to get in the boat, cut it off, sail off, save themselves, and let the landlubbers go. But now Paul says something here. And what Paul says is, is the wonder of the pulling back of the curtain. He says to the, to the centurion, unless these men sail the boat, you're going to join that's just what he said. Unless these men sail the boat, the large ship, you're going to drown. You cannot be saved. So naturally, the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. In other words, they deliberately cut off the last lifeboat so they were all in the ship together, sailors and non-sailors. 
And as the story runs on, uh, as the story runs on, the men sail the boat. The sailors sail the boat. And the sailors sail the boat magnificently. I've had sailors who told me that the, the, the way this thing is told, it's a, they say it's one of the best shipwreck stories that's ever been written, and it's real to every detail, to every, every last detail. If you know anything about sailing a sailing ship, uh, as they would have had, approximately the same size as, uh, as the Romans had, which, of course, were not big boats compared with ours, that it's magnificently recorded. And these men magnificently sailed the boat. They saw when there was daybreak, that there in the pounding surf, there was a little stream running down. You know, it wouldn't have been any good for the Queen Mary, but it would for a solid size of a Roman boat. So they, they just let her drop. And they let the wind get behind them, and it must have been moving at a tremendous rate, wasn't But really, smash into the beach. The bow stuck in the, into the, up into the little stream. And with a boat the size of a Roman boat, this would make an appreciable amount of difference to be able to <clears throat> to stick the bow of the boat up into the little stream rather than sticking out over the total beach. You can see it would make a lot of difference for the pounding waves. And so it says a little further on that some swam, some went on board. Some swam, some went on board after this. And the 44th verse, the rest, the last of the story, and the rest, some on board, some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. It's the drawing back of the curtain. Isn't that what God said was going to happen? God said that they were all going to be saved. None, not one was going to drown. And that happened exactly, not one drowned. But in the middle of it, you have the drawing back of the curtain. Paul says, the men must sail the ship. You don't have a fatalistic situation. You do not have a fatalistic situation. You have in this place, as in 1 Samuel, but especially here, as I say, the drawing back of the curtain, slightly beyond the mere balance of the situation. These others are the balance. Here you have something more. You have a declared, inspired statement that the second causes are necessary, administered by men freely, in order to bring to pass the final end of God. Now it's absolutely fruitless to say, what if they didn't sail the ship? They did. But the whole thing was totally necessary. The whole thing is totally necessary. If the sailors hadn't sailed the ship, the prophecy would not have been fulfilled. But the sailors did sail the ship, and the prophecy was fulfilled. And the prophecy included the whole. And that's the proper expression. Now then, I haven't been but I'm a half hour over and I'm going to stop. I'll leave it at this. And the Lord will next time with no review whatsoever. I'll simply give you the conclusion and then go on to our next subject. This now ends.
or seven studies, but I would like to I would like to read to you after looking at First Samuel twenty three and Acts twenty seven. No better conclusion could be given than Paul's conclusion, reading again in the last verses of the eleventh chapter. Oh the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or, for, uh, or who hath first given to him, this is a quotation from long before this in the book of Job, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again, for of him, and through him, and to him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. This is the God of the Bible. Personal God, true Trinity, and completely infinite. It now ends our seventh study in the doctrine of the Bible.